Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited back to our show, show Nicole Salter. We're going to discuss an issue that has been really showing itself more profoundly in the last couple of months in the United States than, well, for quite a while, and that's the issue of racism. It's as old as the beginnings of this country. It's been chipped away at at varying extents during time, but there remains a strange, wholly inappropriate, and unethical, inhumane, systemic basis that can be found in the court system, in law, with redlining, in business practices, and in the police departments across the country. But the issue is now front and center, and it appears that some changes are underway. That's what we'll be discussing today. A little bit about Nicole. Nicole has been writing and speaking about the black experience in America as an actress, as a playwright, as an educator, as an advocate for many years. She's been discussing issues of systemic racism and has been part of projects to reconnect African-Americans to their roots, to their original African ancestry. Beautiful, beautiful work. Nicole also has a stellar career as an actress, having recently played Coretta Scott King and Sally Childress, LBJ's secretary, in a Broadway debut about the LBJ administration, The Great Society, through which I first met her. At that time, Nicole was on a roundtable on A Better World with some of her colleagues, and we discussed the play and its historical context, its importance to today, etc. Nicole was also a graduate of Howard University with BFA, NYU with an MFA. She's been a regular on Godfather of Harlem on EPIX. So I want to welcome Nicole to A Better World. Hi, good to see you. Can I hear you? I don't yes, hear you. you. Can hear me. Now you can I can hear, hear you. Now yeah, I can hear you. Something. Wonderful. But your head, I can see you, but your head is a little cut off. And I, There we go. I want to get the whole thing. <laughs> Good. Welcome to A Better World. Good to have you. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we're, Nicole, at this incredibly interesting moment in American U.S. history, you know, We've been through thick and thin, and so much suffering has taken place, and now we're at what looks like a a precipice, a moment where things are really beginning to change in a way many of us have been hoping for and praying for for a long time. Talk a little bit, if you would, about how do you see this moment of possible change? What are your thoughts? Well, I think... This moment is reminiscent of moments that this country has had before. And in, I also think this moment is different. Um, I'd like to think of it as the next step and the evolution of the realization of the truth in our social system. Yes. Um, I like I'm really that. excited by that. Yes, exactly. Now, you made reference to other times, and it's just so true. I'm, My mind, I guess based on my age, et cetera, I, I think back, of course, to I was a kid 
during Martin Luther King and about the time of the Great Society, but, you know, that was a very important moment. Malcolm X was another very important moment. Um, Stokely Carmichael was another very important moment, right? And others at that time period, the Black Panthers, were another important moment when people stopped judging the outside and looked at the inside purpose that they were seeking to accomplish. Rodney King was another important moment, right? More recently, um, Brown in St. Louis, in Baltimore, in Georgia, oh, you know, in Detroit. I mean, you know, it breaks our hearts to even think about all these moments that we thought might be change moments, you know. But you're saying that you may think that this one holds a different type of energy. Expand on that. Well, I think the zeitgeist is different. When I think about what I know of the civil rights movement, it was very much a revelation to many white people the reality of oppression that black people were enduring. Um, It is no longer a revelation in that same way. And there are many people from many different backgrounds and many different classes who have come to accept the truth of that oppression as being systemic, not um, a lone wolf uh, on the margins of Ku Klux Klandom, but a real problem with the way that we value black lives. And I think even more importantly to me, if it could be more importantly than valuing black lives, Mm. is that people are realizing that there's a disease in our perception of reality that is reflected in the systems that we've created and inherited that is based in a lie and causing a lot of suffering. And that lie is the hierarchy. It's a lie. It doesn't exist. We made it up, and we sustain it. But everything that operates out of nature Mm -hmm. causes a disease. So we have a longstanding social cancer in the mindset of hierarchy because it's not based in nature. It's not real. Similarly, we have created a horde of suffering out of the thoughts of hierarchy and our creation of scarcity. Scarcity is actually not real. It is only our experience because we've created systems that maintain scarcity. But there's actually plenty of resources for us to have all that we need to live and thrive, not just live, not just survive, mm-hmm. in life. And so not only is this a moment when we're saying, hmm, what's wrong with this ju- judicial system? Hmm, what's wrong with this police enforcement system? Hmm, what's wrong with this economic system? Hmm, what's wrong with this social system? But we're also saying, hmm, those, those are four major systems. If we were talking about the human body, we'd be like, hmm, what's wrong with the respiratory system? Hmm, what's, what's wrong, wrong with, with the, the respiratory heart? system? Hmm, what's wrong with the nervous system? How can there be all something wrong with all 
all of these systems and nothing wrong with us. <laughs> it's not the it's not the system that needs to be band-aided. It's us. I feel like we've spent decades seeing the outcomes be unfavorable and unfair. And our approach to fixing that is akin to people looking in the mirror and not liking what they look like and wiping the mirror down. Like, what's wrong with this reflection? Or covering it. Right. <laughs> but never changing your shirt, never moving your body, just looking and scrubbing away at the mirror. What the hell, right? And now Something's wrong with that mirror, obviously. That's my reflection. It's doing its actual job. It's reflecting all of the diseased ways in which we're thinking, all of uh, all of the belief systems that we have that are false. It keeps reflecting it over and over, and it's not the mirror. It's us. We should do something different. Yeah. And I feel like that's what gives me a lot of about this moment. Very much so. And and it's happening at a time of economic destruction. So before, when there were moments like this where people would go, Yeah, that's 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 what's happening. I can see it. But they won't do anything different because we're so busy earning money and maintaining our standard of living. So we we'll, we hope someone does it, but we're never gonna do it because we have to go make this money. Now no one's making money. Nobody's at work, <laughs> so we can protest. Right. So now, now we have more people focused um, in a way that we wouldn't have before, even within color um, communities of color. So, well, that's beautiful. I love the imagery. I the uh, kind of the metaphor of the body with all of the systems breaking down and equating that to the economic system, to the political system, the policing system, and law enforcement and everything. It's like, hello, it's all of it. It's, if all of those systems in the body were to break down, a person would be close to death. And so in reality, that really is, I feel too, that's where we so much are. The good news, which but you're nothing like illness to wake you up. Exactly. To how you need to change your eating habits. Exactly. To wake you up to have to work out or whatever needs to happen. Exactly. That's what it takes. It takes that level. So, in a sense, we could come back to the idea that pain, sad as it is, because I would not have designed things this way, but pain is the teacher. You know, when people suffer, when, and I also am a well, great... I, I, I dissociate those two. I think Tell pain me. is life. Oh. Pain is birth, pain is teething, pain is when you fall and you're walking. Suffering is when you have an opportunity to realign with the truth, and you don't. That's suffering. I you don't have it. to suffer. You sound like... You have to go through pain. You sound like the Buddha. (laughs) Just telling you. (laughs) Life is suffering. (laughs) But it doesn't have to be suffering. But you're right. In reality, life is just 
full of pain. And it's how we deal with it that will distinguish one person from another, one group from another, you know. And look at the Jews in the Holocaust. A lot of them were in the uh, encampments dancing and singing and making plays at night undercover in order to keep their spirits up, you know. And during the day they did whatever drudgery work they were assigned, you know. But And so we have examples. I mean, we have that uh, in the black experience in the United States as well um, during the years of the plantations, you know. Where does the blues come from? Where does a lot of the richness of the depth of music and culture overall of the United States comes well, from? We we know that. that. Yeah, tell me. I hope that people, this is now talking specifically about my field, yeah. about America. The point that you just made about the ways in which we have used cultural expression for spiritual maintenance, a lot of what our culture teaches us about our artists and about cultural expression in general is that it's frivolous and that it's oh, um, yeah. for our entertainment and pleasure. And what we're, I hope this moment helps us to remember is that we've been pimping our cultural technology for healing, restoration, connection and community Yes. for money. And I'm not against earning money. No. I'd like to earn money. Thing to do in our thinking. 
diversity is a big popular word these days, you know, and diversity is the other word you could say for nature. Nature makes the strangest little animals and creatures of every single size, shape, and color for survival and adaptation. What? Yeah, there's no there's no homogenous ecosystem. Right. That's why I that's actually why I believe in integration. I was I was on the brink of becoming a segregationist, of being done with white people altogether. Oh, please don't (laughs) do it. (laughs) No, I I understand. Can understand. That I believe is that nature is not homogenous. If if there's isolation or homogeneity in nature. That ecosystem dies. And I think we need to honor the the heterogeneous way in which any ecosystem comes together. That's right. Well, and we need to be ordered, like the body is ordered, but not ranked. If I ask you what your if you had to rank your your organs. Yes, right. Yeah. How would you go about doing that? That's right. It's, it's, you can't do that. You need them all to do their job. Exactly. Well. That's right. That's right. And I feel in society, we've created systems that make one thing more important than another. Yeah. One group of people more important than another. And that's actually just not true. And living a lie causes suffering. So is that the hierarchy that you were pointing your finger to earlier? Yes, absolutely. I feel like the Western world's history of civilization is very rooted in their capacity to sense what I can see, what I can hear, what I can smell, taste, and touch. When you look at indigenous communities, there's, there is, they also do that. But there's room for that which you can't see, hear, That's no right. To touch. That's right. And I think that all of our systems the Western world has created is based on what we can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. That's right. And we're realizing that just because you can't see a seed doesn't mean it's not there and growing. How about oxygen? When was the last time all you saw that molecule? When was the last time you saw that? And yet you rely on it. So how the systems that we created then were about what we can see and what we thought we saw was a line, was a chain, was a a lion and a ant. And what like we're even realizing now in agriculture, you go ahead and try living life without bees and see what happens. Or worms. Everything. Or exactly. Everything needs to be here doing its job well. And we all need to care for each other and empower each other to be who we are, as we are, and we need to create systems that allow that to happen. And I feel like that's the conflict. Yes. Because we have been invested in this hierarchy. Even those of us who haven't risen high on the ladder, we're still invested. Oh, definitely. We've been planning our whole lives to get to the top of this. Yes, exactly. And now you're saying it doesn't exist? Well, what the? Like, <laughs> right. It's like and the I Wizard of Oz, you know? It's yeah. going behind the curtain. You know? Little yes. little Toto. 
which, by the way, of course, in Latin means all. So all pulls the boogeyman from the all the levers, the levers of power and fire, right? And then we see that it's all a, or the expression of puff of smoke. It's all a lie. That we believe in wholeheartedly. But once you know that it's a lie, you have to stop believing it. You have to start acting, or as we would say in the African American community, um, once you know better, you've got to do better. Beautiful. And now we know better, but we're not doing better. And it's time to do better. Absolutely. You know, you raise something. I'm, uh, you know, I'm catalyzed to say something that I've been saying for a long time. And, you know, in certain people's ears it could seem uh, controversial. I don't know why. I say there's no such thing as racism. I wanted to actually change the number, the name to colorism. And the reason is because there's one race. <laughs> there's only one race. And colorism is what we call the very color, the very coloration um Colorism is the word that we've assigned to the hierarchy within the black community. Is that so? You mean, I I didn't know that. We rank each other within the black community. In other words, lighter or darker. Lighter. That's called colorism. I did not know that. Thank you for... So you are right. Yeah, I just, you know, my gut told me because, you know, it's healthy. And, um, it's not part of that disease system you were talking about. But isn't that interesting? I mean, I knew that there was a ranking that took place having to do with, I didn't know it was called colorism. But So the whole idea, you see, every community, because, you know, you and I know the importance and power of language, you as an actress and playwright and writer and I as a writer and communicator, uh, what we call things is not unimportant. To the contrary, it's very important. And I would like to sort of pluck the word race out of the conversation and see what happens to people. It's all made up anyway, right? So why perpetuate a lie? Because we're well, I, all in it. I think. What are your thoughts? Also, very interesting. Yeah. Language is very interesting because. It is a direct reflection of how you think about the world. I'm no linguist, but what I, the few languages I know I find fascinating. Um, I love how in Spanish the noun always comes before the adjective. So you'll say, es, es una mujer bonita. Bonita. Right? She's but beautiful she's after first. she's a woman, right? She's a woman first, and then you describe what she is. But in our language... You say that she's a beautiful woman. It's the emphasis is on beautiful. the beauty um, or the ugliness or whatever. And I love how in the Chinese language that they haven't lost the sense of symbolism. So all language, the alphanumeric alphabet is actually the most devoid of symbolic system of language that I know of. But when you look at Mandarin, when you look at Cantonese, and when you look at emojis, oh, that, yes. that is how yeah. human beings have communicated.
communicated for longer than they've had the alpha numeric. That's right. That's right. And I like it because it's directly reflected of nature. It's a, it's a little picture uh, that has more meaning yep. than CDESG. Yeah. And there's so much room for misinterpretation in in the English language. What suppression means to you, what what just happened? What colorism means to you exactly. was just different from what it meant to me. That's but we right. were using the same word. Right. But if I go to you, <laughs> that means the same thing to you. That's right. As it does to me. Exactly. Distress. Absolutely. Sadness. And I feel yeah. like if we are going to change, it's going to be hard to change ourselves using this language because how we think about the world in its linear way, in its hierarchical way, in its scarce way yes, is the basis of this language. It's a language for totally agreed. It's been said that it's a language for commerce. And one of the things that you were indicating about Chinese, about Mandarin, or both of them, both of those, of the many, is that it's, you could call it whole brain. And the use of emojis or images or cave paintings or any kind of representation, you know, uh, imagistic, is engaging both hemispheres of the brain. So we experience what we call, you know, in German, actually, since we're going this far, um, a gestalt. It's the, <laughs> right? It's a gestalt. <laughs> it's the total, as we say in Brooklyn, it's the total picture, you know? It's the total picture. It's the total picture. The whole shebang. <laughs> <space. laughs> There's no question about it, right? <laughs> So, but it's, it's harder to it's harder to mistake. That's right. It's really easy. English is a language of deception. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know what people mean, yeah. even though you just heard what they said. Yeah. I literally just heard what you said. I speak your language, and I don't know what you mean. <laughs> that is, I have that experience all the time in English. And that's why we have to go back and forth and back and forth in clarification of these words as though we're illiterate, both literate, and we still don't know what, what each other means. Isn't that the craziest thing? How many marriages. Exactly. That's why so many fall apart. I know. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know what you mean, but I did hear what you said. That's right. So you know what another aspect, so many misunderstandings happen, interestingly, through texting or through emails these days, you'll notice. It's missing a very important component, and that's being able to look at each other and get the nonverbal communication that helps to fill in the story and completes the narrative, if you will, which is when you made a sad face, you know, that's what I know what you're feeling at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the English language intentionally wanted to remove that because it because it devalued it. Like, what do we need with all these I don't know if the I don't know if the 
the language. I think that people use language for their own hierarchical purposes. That's what. And we have been the recipient of that. But when you look at the richness of the language, on the other hand, as it comes from ancient Greek, it comes from ancient Latin, it comes from Sanskrit, it comes from ancient German, it comes from ancient Scandinavian, you know, all of a sudden, in the hands of a poet or a playwright, you know, all of a sudden, there's all of a sudden an incredible richness, a prosperity. There really isn't a scarcity. It's it's sort of like it's there, and we can do with it as we creatively choose. Exactly. I'd like to ask you here, Nicole, because... This is an incredibly delicious conversation, and I'm really enjoying it. I would like to see, you know, go back to the idea of how we can shift perception, because there are perceptions that have been embedded in our society, largely but not only through media, um, but there's been this black-white thing in many people's minds. I don't know about many people, but in certain people's minds, that have that that just that it it like breeds fear and concern and where did white supremacy come from? Well, I, I want to say a little funny thing first, which is that the great uh, the great irony in which we're all living as well is what anthropologists have taught us, which is that all the entire human species actually began in Black Africa. I say this to people all the time. I say, you don't understand. <laughs> we were all, you know, black at one point before migrations. By the way, another totally natural thing, migrations of birds, migrations of homo sapiens, et cetera, et cetera. And in new climates, uh, the need for melanin changed, the need for any number of things, here we're back at diversity. But anyway, I, I'm saying a lot of things, but please respond as you see fit. How do we go toward resolving and solving, in your mind, a lot of the issues with which we're currently dealing? Well, I think in large part, we've misused our imaginations. <laughs> um, we use them. Nice. All manifestation begins with a narrative. A thought that gets connected to another thought that gets connected to another thought, now you have a story. That's right. The stories that we tell ourselves are designed to promote hierarchy, not truth. Homogeny, conformity, not diversity. Um, I think those narratives are enraptured in fear fear of the loss of identity, fear of the loss of power, fear of going without or being endangered. We as a species, the human species, yeah. have evidence that supports that those fears are not, no longer based in anything real. We have proven our capacity to provide we have proven our capacity to find safety, but we won't let go of the story that we're in danger. Right. And we won't let go of the story that there's not enough. Exactly. We are obese. 
Um, so I think the level of reflection that is needed may, may be difficult, but we don't need everyone to do it. We just need a tipping point of people to do it. And I feel like the right use of storytelling in a multiplicity of ways, in a mass media way, and in a very small kitchen table way, is how we realign with the truth. It's the, the more we admit our fears, the more we call out the elephants in the room, the more we insist on living in personal integrity. Am I lying to myself? Am I lying to other people? The more we'll be able to actually deal with reality, because really we've been dealing in fantasy. Right? 
spelling? I think that the Western world looked at nature and saw competition yeah. as the, as the uh, yeah. motive, engine the engine, right? Evolution. And it can be, but when it is out of balance with the truth that is not ranked, then it becomes a system of suffering. Where people are trying to win for the sake of winning, that's where you have the end justifying the means. We don't care how you got there, just that you did. We don't care how you got rich, how many people you sold crack to, how many people you robbed blind of their future. Yeah. As long as you are rich. Exactly. And I feel like that is what's out of balance. And I also am not deluded about how much work it takes to maintain that balance, especially in things that we create. But I know that a balance is attainable because nature has it. That's right. Absolutely. You know, a long time ago, I came up with a kind of like a cartoon for the New Yorker, which uh, since I don't draw very well, I could never really do it, but it was two, you know, like uh, Ku Klux Klansmen standing by the side watching we New Yorkers hang out with each other, white, black, red, yellow, you name it. We're happy that everybody's here. And they were looking at They were seeing, you know, people of different um, colors and genders and everything, holding hands, walking down the street, laughing and all. And they said, damn, and because of marriages, so everybody's taking on sort of this beautiful, or the skin, very beautiful. Um, um, you know, the sort of beige color. They looked, one looked at the other and said, you know, I don't know who to be prejudiced against anymore. <laughs> no, there's a I was, thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. One of the freedom writers, yeah. the freedom writers her name was Joan. I forget her last name. Joan. Ah, what was it? I can't remember her last name. Uh-huh. Well, her and her sister were in college, but in different places. She was in California. Her sister was in Chicago. And both of them, irrespective of each other, they hadn't conversed, decided to be a part of the movement at the time when people were going to Mississippi to flood the jails, to make it impossible to jail everyone. Well, she went, Joan was from California, and, you know, she's, I think she went to, like, Berkeley or somewhere. So she was golden tan in complexion. And when she sat before the intake officer to get arrested, he asked her what her race was, and she refused to respond. And to, to, to be cautious not to make a mistake, because he couldn't tell, mm-hmm. he put her with the black people. Then came her sister, which who is a fitting image of her, but she was coming from Chicago, not so tan, and he realized that they were sisters and that she was white so that the other one had to be white, so he went to the black barracks to pull her out. And she said, what kind of system yeah. of governance is your system when you can't even tell what I am? It's based in nothing. Exactly. 
you're making a decision about whether you're going to favor me or not based on something so supercilious, it has no basis in reality, which, of course, is what you keep saying. Right. You keep saying. So how do we bring – you're a storyteller. You're an actress. By the way, you were so exceptional. I completely fell in love with you. Blew me away (laughs) in the great society, really. In both your roles, you know, they were so different and really – so elegant, so thank you. Um, how do you see, Nicole, going from where we are now, and because we know that all society does follow a story, and that legislation tra- uh, follows a story, and policing follows a story, all of the things that we consider so real are really following a storyline. How do you see crafting that story for today so we can really create a more beautiful future, a more humane one? That's a very personal question for me. I'm asking myself that as an artist. Yeah, sure. Up until this point in my career as a writer, I've spent a lot of time examining why conflicts are conflicts. Mm-hmm. Because we all live in our own silos, and we're like, well, clearly if you just did this, this problem wouldn't be a problem. Or clearly those people are racist. If they just stop being racist, this won't be a problem. And every play that I've written, I've been blessed to discover all of the, all of the things I didn't know about the conflict that make me go, hmm, that's why that's so hard to solve. No wonder it's not going to go away, or it's not going away. Yes. When I think about myself now as a writer, I think about myself differently because I understand spiritually the power of imagination. When you spend your time crafting a world that looks at the problem in that way, Mm -hmm. it's almost like planting a seed of manifesting the thing that you've invested your imagination. Yes, exactly, yes. Going back to language, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, how can I use my power of imagination and storytelling to actually conjure more of what I actually want? Yes, exactly. Um, love, peace, joy, beauty, exactly. pleasure, uh, gratitude, yeah. prosperity, yeah. abundance. On the affirmative side, instead of the yeah. problem-solving negative diagnostic side. Yeah. How can I do it in a way that yeah. doesn't dishonor the fact that these are real issues? Right. Um. I don't want to make la-la land things. That's ridiculous to me as well. But I have to find a way to ultimately use my capacity to conjure reality, to conjure what we actually want, without feeling like I'm writing a Disney film. Yeah. enough to create a better world, if you will, to borrow a phrase, um, that has the constituent parts of enough of reality that it's not too far a departure and becomes a real believable story. And so it's like within our grasp to actually actualize. That's what I hear you saying. 
And that's uh, this is what I'm saying, and it's hard because yeah. it's about your beliefs. That's right. And where it starts. How far can I stretch it if it starts way over here? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, i got to say that that's part of what's so interesting at this moment historically that has struck me. You know, a phrase came up of defunding the police. Now, on the surface of it, it's like, you mean not does that mean not have a police force? Well, no, it's not that. It's basically what I've heard, and please tell me what you've heard, that it means a reallocation of money to more social programs to create um a more affirmative way of people living and interacting with each other more socially, more with sports, more with arts, that will keep people from hanging out on the street and getting into trouble, which would attract the police and start that whole cycle. You know, by the way, we can't really have this conversation without talking about something that I've been saying forever and probably you do. Um, you know, that in some ways, even though there's the Emancipation Proclamation um, and the Civil War, in a way, I've been saying always that slavery actually never ended. It became colorblind. And that means that all of us are included now because just as Martin Luther King so brilliantly said, and many say this is actually what got him assassinated, was if he left the discussion of black and white. And he moved to the much more sensitive area of economic justice and peace, where there's a huge money trail in making war, and that's what got him, you know, really killed. So and I just wanted to bring all this up for you. I have a friend named Raymond Bobgan, who is the artistic director of the Cleveland Public Theater in Cleveland. And he and his organization with his CFO introduced me to the idea of the budget as a dramaturgical document. You want to know what someone oh. believes? Oh, I see. You look see. at how they spend their money. Yeah. And you look at how they spend their time, the most precious resource. That's right. Not what they say, not what they think, not what they write. Right. Show me where you put your money. If you spend all your money on skincare, it's because you believe in beauty. Yes. You believe it to be a powerful thing. And you believe it to be important to you getting what you need. You can tell me you love the Lord, but you only give the Lord $5. You just gave Estee Lauder 400 <laughs> So, yeah. Um, and I think that defunding the police at the root of it is about that. Yeah. We say right. once, we're out of integrity, America. We say we believe one thing, and we are putting our money someplace else. We are spending our time elsewhere. So these that makes that a lie. So something has to happen to reconcile that. We have to refund the things that we say we believe, or we have to stop saying we believe that and start telling the truth. We believe in winning. We believe in being on top. We believe in domination. We believe in money. That should be our creed, because that's what we're actually doing. It's so true. It's so true. 
You know, when Clinton was president, and I did not vote for him. I've actually been voting third party for many years. But nonetheless, you know, I played saxophone, smoked a little pot, and had long hair and avoided the draft. So I thought, oh, well, I don't really trust him, but I think he's probably slightly cool, and maybe there's a little window of possibility of having a different world. So I wrote to him. In fact, my first TV show was my reading my letter to Clinton back in 1993. And it called for an apology, a series of apologies to first the Native American people, the indigenous people, then to the African American people, then to the Latin people, and then to the Chinese people, and then to the Japanese people, and all of the people that the United States government was officially uh, interring and enslaving in one way or another, right? I mean, this is just reality, right? I said, if you really want to have a real country with integrity, you must do this. This is not a choice. It should have never, all this stuff should never have happened in the first place. That it's happened, at least apologize. And then seek to, uh, you know, plead with the original peoples of this country to form a cabinet-level council of elders that will help guide you into the future. That's one thing. Another was that, and I want to hear you respond to all of this, the other one, Nicole, was that he go to the other G7, G20, and say, hey, look, guys, you know, I don't have to tell you how ridiculous it is spending billions and trillions of dollars, ultimately, on killing each other. What could be more absurd? We have people hungry in every single one of our respective countries. Let's help each other. We grow a ton of food. We can't use it. We'd love to help you in Africa. We'd love to help you in India. We'd love to help you in China. And you have things that could help us. Let's work it out, man. Let's work it through. Anyway, I thought, you know, let's really go for peace as an affirmative action instead of a defensive reactionary military action, which is where we live. Anyway, this is in light of what you were saying, Nicole, of following the money trail and following studying the budget. Your thoughts? I, I think I think that the, the Western world makes me laugh because ultimately they come around to what indigenous communities have been saying <laughs> forever for eons. Yeah. But there's something about the ego where the Western world won't accept anything that they didn't come up with they, because they believe in hierarchy. You couldn't possibly have anything of value that I can learn from. You have things of value I will steal from you, <laughs> but nothing yeah. I can learn from. You actually, because the story in my mind yes. is that you know nothing. I invented everything. The world exists because of me. All human progress occurred because I am here. And you, therefore, are just a subject. <laughs> I mean, the, 
speak about hierarchy, like the idea of royalty even. That's right. Which the Western world is not the only world guilty of. No. Um, but there's something about there our need to be the generators of the idea. I'm talking about, Mitchell, I'm talking about radical truth. Say exactly what you mean yep. the way you mean it. And if you end up being wrong, because you could be, then change your mind. Say, I believe black people are less than me. That is what you believe. Say that so that we can actually deal with reality. Yeah. Stop saying um, whatever people say. Like, for instance, all of these notices that people are coming out with, these statements of solidarity. You don't mean solidarity because you're at home eating tacos, watching Netflix. Mm-hmm. I'll be damned if you tell me you're in solidarity with me and I'm out here getting killed and you're at home eating tacos. Say what you mean. I offer distance support financially, and endless sympathy. I feel really bad that you're going through that. Yes. But I'm not going anywhere. You're not in solidarity. Call it what it is. That's what I think. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, We have just a couple more minutes, but I would like to ask you about something that I was really moved to hear about when we spoke some time back about the work you're doing, uh, talk about ennobling and dignifying uh, through ancestral work. I love that. In fact, we may do another show on that, but if you would just tickle our audience a little bit with some of what you've been up to in that regard, um, that would be great. Sure. In 2000. I started an organization with a man named Sangu and Jakam called the Continuum Project. And the goal of that project was really to use art to make social, I wouldn't say to make social change, to make art relevant to public engagement, mm-hmm. to move, remove it from the place of entertainment and to figure out how it can function to serve the needs of various communities. Yeah. Our first project was called the Legacy Program because our desire was to help descendants of the African, of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Explore the impact of that event on their sense of identity and to become curious about redefining themselves outside of the paradigm of white supremacy and oppression. Mm -hmm. I'm not black because you're white. (laughs) My blackness is not defined by by your whiteness. whiteness. Yeah. My Ghanaian-ness is not defined by your whiteness. My Senegalese-ness is not defined by your whiteness. It is its own thing. Right. And related to you, we're human beings on the planet, but not 
no longer a part of the oppressive narrative. Um, we thought it was important Restored to Restored to its yeah. own proper rights and lineage. Now, right. we had so a beautiful. partnership with African Ancestry, mm -hmm. the first company to do um, genetic lineage testing, who was also able to tell you with great accuracy the probability of your connection to people currently identifying as whatever they are on the continent of Africa. So that we move from the generality of Africa mm -hmm. to a specificity that needs healing. Yes. And then back out to the generality of humanity. That um, is beautiful. We that work with young beautiful. people because we, yeah. well, for a couple reasons. One, they are going to be the people who are going to teach their children. So we want to start to perpetuate new generations that have this healing. But two, when you're at your middle school age, you're at a critical moment where you're moving from an understanding of yourself just as a part of your family, like I am my mother's child, I am my father's child. Yes. I am my brother's sister, I'm my sister's brother. To how you're being perceived in the world. Oh, I'm black. What is that? Most people that we have worked with, young and old, because we've worked with um, older populations as well, mm -hmm. have trauma centered around the discovery of their own blackness. It's not a positive thing. Yeah. What I'd like to do is, because we are out of time, I want to put a bookmark here, if it's okay with you, and pick up on this, because I think it's so important, because you're talking about intergenerational trauma now, and yeah. multiple levels of it, and, and I think it's I very important. And also I want to point out that yeah. trauma is not exclusive to African people of the African descent. I think white people also have this trauma sure. in a different way, and yeah. we both need to I think it's you're an right. all or nothing deal. I think you're really right. To be part of a group who has perpetuated so much harm is incredibly painful. If you are a sensitive soul and you see that your predecessors have perpetuated so much violence against so many people worldwide, you feel like, why am I here embodying this in some way? So, no, I hear you. It's really... Why is that my inheritance? Why is that my inheritance? Yeah. Exactly. You're beautiful. Thank you. I love what you were sharing with our audience. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we'll have you back. Thank you so much, Mitchell. Absolutely, Nicole. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. That's done. Okay. Thank you, my dear. So wonderful to do this You're with welcome. you, you know? Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> so tell me, you were saying very excitedly in your text that, what, you just bought a house or something out in New Jersey? Yeah, I'm in the middle of buying a house. And That's awesome. I've, I've been scrambling to try to maintain all the things of my life. Yeah. And to do this thing, and it's, you know, when it's go time, it's go time. They don't care what you have to do. You have to take these calls. You have to get this paperwork in. Yeah. And yeah. I I fall behind. 
<laughs> well, it's a lot of stuff, you know. Where in Jersey? In East Orange. Oh, really? Wow, we. My grandmother used to live, I, I don't know, I think West Orange. I don't really know. But I was a little kid, and we used to go out there and swim in her pool, you know, and it was great. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's nice out there. It's nice out I, there. I am in love. Wow. I'm excited. Oh, good for you. I'm so happy for you. That's very cool. Okay. That's very cool. Wonderful. So, but you were originally from Brooklyn? Is that what no, I remember? I was originally from California. Oh, from California. Oh, yeah. Where? Los Angeles. Oh, oh, wow. oh. And you came here and stayed here. Cool. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people say about me, Nicole, that they say, You you really are like a new you're like a Californian misplaced in New York. But you know uh, I I feel that way sometimes. You know, I, 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 I was born here, but nonetheless I I adore California, you know, and it's just great. Well, well, this is all very good. Thank you for finding the time and all of this, in all of your, you know, madness with uh, house closing and all. And I wish you luck. And you know, let's stay in touch, okay? Thank you. Okay, and I'll have you back on, and we'll really go into depth about what we just opened up at the end about, okay? Okay. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.